Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's Thursday at 4.20 p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroyo's weekly session for cultivators who want to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name is Keisha. I'll be moderating solo today. Shout out to Mandy, who's on a well-deserved vacation. As always, if you're live with us um, here and you have a question, you can type it in the chat at any time. If your question gets picked, We'll either uh, have you unmute yourself or I can ask for you. We're also fielding questions from YouTube Live. You're welcome to post your questions there. Don't forget to like and subscribe too. Um, first time question ask askers will get swag. And everyone today uh, who's on will have a chance to win a limited edition Arroyo t-shirt, just like the one I'm wearing. So type your email address into the chat to enter. That is limited to U.S. residents and one winner per household. Just me and you today, Jason. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's awesome. good to see you, Keisha. Yeah, you too. Fresh from Las Vegas at the Cannabis Conference last week. Uh, good to be back on office hours. Um, all right. So, Jason, you ready for our first question from Instagram? Yeah, let's kick this off. Let's kick it off. All right. I got a couple of questions this week regarding AC. So, EC. So, let's start there. Uh, Torma Cannabis wants to know, what's an ideal substrate EC to aim for? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and uh, we're going to obviously kind of approach it with just a general sense, not knowing necessarily about genetics or the specific uh, nutrients, uh, nutrient line that you're working off of. Uh, it's why we like time series data, is because when we talk about uh, what EC are we shooting for, we're here at Arroya looking at substrate EC typically, right? What is the plant specifically feeling with its its roots? Uh, we can, you know, we can talk about ideal feed EC, but that's not necessarily the specific EC that the plants are feeling. So obviously something like time series data is the best way to talk about the ideal EC simply because EC is going to be very dynamic when we look at the drybacks, uh, you know, the modulation based on your feed amounts, your runoff amounts and how much dryback you get. So, well, and also depending on the plant life cycle. So based on what your goals are, we can modulate that EC to uh, allow plant elongation. You know, some people call it stretch. Uh, basically, typically a, a more vegetative, a lower EC is going to do some of that type of stuff. And then when we decrease the osmotic potential between the root zone and the plant, aka increasing EC in the root zone, then we're going to typically see a more generative type of uh, plant morphology. And so really what it comes down to is thinking about how many shots do we want and how much runoff do we want in order to achieve the root zone EC that we want. When I look at something like a generative root zone, a lot of times our root zone will be in between that 5 and 15. And so yeah, that seems like an absolutely huge range and a really, really strong growing plant can go from five EC after an irrigation to 15 EC before the irrigation the next morning. When we look at, you know, 20, 25% dryback, a really healthy dryback in an appropriate sized media, then we're going to have a, a pretty significant increase in that EC. When we're more vegetative, uh, you know, anywhere probably between say five and eight is going to be a little bit more realistic. 
depending on your nutrient composition, you might want to run a little bit lower than that or a little bit higher than that. And one of the best things about using time series data and documenting your harvest groups is getting an understanding of what the golden or the ideal recipe is for a specific cultivar in the environment that you're running. So as we always talk about when we are crop steering, we like to make sure that our environmental parameters are close to as ideal as possible. So making sure that you know we're looking at VPD so that we know if we need to modify our relative humidity or our temperature in order to get that plant's transpiration rates up as high as possible. If you have access to a leaf parameter, looking at stomatal conductance is a great way to absolutely dial in your environment to make sure that your next steps with crop steering have the best foundation possible in order to improve product efficiency. That's great. And actually this next question is perfect. It aligns with this topic. Um, NRY Garden wanted to uh, know what EC should be targeted after stretch. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times when we look at uh, plants life cycle, when we're, you know, running an 18 six vegetative early on in the plant life cycle, we're shooting for as much stems, stalks, um, basically the infrastructure of the plant to, to grow as fast as possible. When we flip to 1212, uh, for a lot of types of plants, and especially if we're already rooted into our final media, we'll start to push a little bit of generative pressure onto that plant. Basically what that's doing is to help reduce um, the amount of stretch that you're getting. And by doing that, we're getting as many bud sites in the canopy height that we have. So if we're shooting for smaller plants, a lot of times we'll push a little bit harder generative uh, for a little bit longer. Uh, typically though, if we have, don't have height constraints, I like to run generative until we stop seeing that stretch. So basically uh, a lot of times it's going to be, you know, one to four weeks uh, and it is very strain dependent. We've talked about some of the bushier, stockier plants, maybe like a Mac one that doesn't necessarily need much generative. It's genetics are already so generative leaning that we want to uh, basically just you know, run that plant middle of the road and other plants, something like uh, you know, a real stretchy sativa, maybe like a blue dream, uh, that type of thing. We're going to want to run a really long generative type of, uh, signaling. So that stretch time frame can be, or, you know, somewhere a little bit different, but it's a great question because sorry, getting kind of long winded there. When we think about stretch, typically that's the point where we're going from a generative type of uh, strategy to a more vegetative type of strategy. And a lot of times we're going to want to allow our EC to, to drop a little bit over, you know, one to three days. We don't want to do it instantaneously, but what we're going to do is usually just push a little bit more runoff. We're going to have more irrigation events to refresh that media throughout the day. And we're going to go into those, you know, those areas of say, like I said, you know, five to 10, you know, it could be a little bit lower than that too. Um, you say four to eight, uh, from after irrigation to the, um, the dry back EC just before the next day's irrigation. And those are just general guidelines. It, it's really going to depend on, on which nutrients you're using. And, uh, you know, we always typically like to go with a, you know, a two part salt commercially available, unless you've got some, some real great scientists, chemists, agronomics, agronomists that know how to formulate your fertilizers, then then go with something that's, uh, that's well known in the industry. 
Beautiful. Um, thank you guys, uh, Instagram, for those questions. We're actually going to move on to YouTube. So yeah, YouTube Live, dropping questions. And then just a reminder to our attendees who are on with us right now, we want to hear from you too. So be sure to drop your questions in the chat. Our good friend Diane wrote in, they wrote, hi, can you speak to runoff pH? I struggle to keep my runoff pH around 5.8. Quite often it drops to 4.8 to 5.3, around 20 days into flower. My nutrient solution is 6.2 and I'm in peat substrate. Thanks. Ah, yeah. Uh, runoff pH. Glad to hear that you're monitoring it. It's absolute one of the easiest indicators of some type of nutrient imbalance or, uh, you know, an imbalance in the substrate pH. So typically if we're in a, a more inert type of media, something like rock wool, is a great example, then if we see that pH modulate coming out, it's typically due to plants eating more anions or cations. Um, so it's selectively using up more nutrients than what is uh, more, more of a specific nutrient in the composition of the nutrients than others. And that's what's basically pushing that pH up or down. Usually I'll see it go up. Um, the thing you know is peat moss, uh, depending on your supplier, it may or may not have uh, some some type of ability that, that buffers where that pH is at and actually be modifying as, as, as it come through. So, well, you know, one thing that you can do as well is just you know run some um, some drip through test with that that peat specifically. And if you're going in at six two, you're not running a plant in the substrate. You know, what are you seeing? Uh, what are you expecting to come out at that point? Right. You know, there there are some tools uh, on the market that actually allow you to test in substrate pH. Uh, you can give those a shot as well and see see what range that peat is operating at itself. So I guess there's you know basically two main components to to the answer that I'm given here. One would be uh, just the the modification of the the media itself. What is what is it doing to the runoff? And then the other is what um, what is the plant doing to the composition of nutrients, which might be adjusting that pH up or down. Awesome. Thank you for that, Jason. Um, we got a couple questions in from Instagram related to substrate saturation. So let's get into that. Cannabis Devil Dog wrote in, after losing substrate saturation, what is the best way to resaturate a medium? Yeah, I'm going to dig into this just a little bit and, and make some assumptions on this question as well. Uh, so, you know, there's there's a small difference between what scientists consider saturation and field capacity. Most of the time in this industry, we're referring to the same thing, right? At what point does the plant, uh, does the substrate not necessarily hold any more water and all water is going to run off. So if we were looking at a Arroyo graph and we know we're irrigating and we don't see the water content going up, uh, you're, we're getting runoff. We're at field capacity for that substrate. Um, when we ask about uh, if it doesn't get, you know, if it gets away from saturation uh, or field capacity, uh, I'm guessing this is specifically talking about maybe rock wool or, or cocoa when we get really low in water content and we start to develop some hydrophobic pockets. Because basically, you know, when we are doing drybacks, we're going to be, you know, 20 percent, you know, maybe on average, say 15 to 25 percent under our field capacity on a daily basis, right? And that's not necessarily bad as long as that is still above our our degradation point, if you will. I guess we just need to get it, give it some type of name. Uh, but what happens with Rockwell specifically is when it's shipped from the factory, uh, it has binders and a wetting agent inside of it. And that wetting agent 
is going to allow the uh, rock wool to become saturated, right? So what it's doing is it's it's allowing the water to be slicker or stickier, if you will, uh, into the, the molecules of that rock wool. And so what happens that the first time that you wet it out, you're actually pushing those wetting agents through there and the product does no longer have that wetting agent in it. And when we get below, you know, say 30% water content, and it is different depending on you know, manufacturer to manufacturer. But if we get say below 30%, 35% in rock wool, what happens is there starts to get dry pockets in there. It develops some hydrophobic properties in that media. And we'll start to see irrigation funneling, irrigation channeling basically. And why that's not good is obviously we can get some dead spots in our root zone. We have less uniformity of the water content in the substrate. So it becomes harder to monitor. And typically we won't be able to get back up to our original field capacity because those wet spots or those dry spots don't want to become wet like they had previously. Uh, so yeah, uh, the best ways to deal with it, uh, don't get there, use a monitoring system like ours and have your alerts set uh, at a critical point, say, you know, 35 or 40% water content so that, you know, when you're approaching that danger zone. So obviously, you know, pre prevention is the best thing that we can do. Um, after you have got some, some hydrophobic pockets, there's a chance that you can get away with, uh, you know, increasing your field capacity back to the original field capacity by doing some larger irrigations, more irrigations, uh, maybe going in and hand watering, uh, using a surfactant, you know, something, something that helps get back up there. I've seen a lot of mixed results in the industry with, with how that, how well that works to actually restore it. Most of the time we don't see it come back up to, to original, but, but if you are in a, in a, a dire situation where you've run much lower than intended, then uh, yeah, you might have to just go in there and, and do some, some hand watering. And obviously the thing about that is you're going to need to keep an eye on what, what's doing to your nutrients in your substrate as well. So if we do go in there and do a, you know, a, a large amount of water at one time to try and just encase those dry spots with, with water, we're probably going to see that uh, EC drop a little bit more than, than ideal. And so keep that in mind when you are steer, trying to crop steer and, and you are monitoring after a, an issue like that. That's a perfect segue into this next question from Nate Meltz. They wrote in, why can't I get my Hugos up to saturation when they get down too far? Can only get to 48%. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that rolls right into what we were saying, where if we, we dry out too much, uh, we've kind of jeopardized the properties of that rock wool as it was intended by the manufacturer. And, uh, and so that, definitely could have happened. Uh, if, if you did get too low and you are seeing that, that's a, that's a great sign that there probably is some hydrophobic properties that have developed in the, the rock wool and it's, it's no longer performing as intended from the manufacturer. Excellent Jason. Thank you so much for that overview. All right. Going back to YouTube, we got a question in here. Um, they want to know, this is, I think air expansion paragliding. <laughs> How can I get more trichomes? I've heard 30% RH the last two days of flower and or 48 hours of dark at the end of flower. Suggestions? I run a VPD of 1.5, 72F with 50% RH the last two weeks. Thanks. 
Did you catch all those numbers, Jason? <laughs> yeah, I, I, enough to to give a good response here. Um, how do we get more trichomes? Isn't isn't that a wonderful thing? Uh, I the best way to get more trichomes run great genetics. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to increase your your THC content and get a, a nice sticky glistening plant. Uh, you know, as as far as the the room parameters towards the end. Personally, probably wouldn't go for a dark period. I don't think that's necessarily gonna it's gonna do much to modify the trichomes. Uh, you know, those plants when they're cut, they're gonna see dark for a while in the dry rooms. Um, we still do have some biological activity going on throughout that dry period, so I, you know, I wouldn't get too too caught up with with some of that. I haven't seen any science that necessarily um, promotes that that type of activity. Um, VPD of 1.5, that's, you know, that's probably a little bit on the high end, but I don't necessarily know how big a buds you're running or what type of um, mold and mildew pressures exist in your facility. So that's probably a really good place to be. Um, I don't necessarily, you know, think that that's going to necessarily change how much trichomes are on there. Really what we're doing with that VPD towards the end is pushing it higher than what's ideal for the plant just to reduce the, the chances of uh, pest molds, mildews, and, and a real big loss on that crop. So uh, sure, if you don't have those pressures, you know, you could try dropping your VPD down maybe 1.3 or something like that and see if, uh, if that's an improvement, but absolutely only if uh, you're not concerned about molds and mildews. All right, we're rocking and rolling on YouTube Live. This one came uh, through from Hoffman's Choice. They wrote in, can you assume EC from VWC or is that risky due to lockout and other nutrient problems that can happen? So uh, EC, electrical conductivity, uh, basically it's just a measurement of the salts in solution. So that's what we use to drive uh, nutrient content. Uh, VWC, volumetric water content, while we do typically see the EC rise when VWC drops, uh, it's not necessarily always going to be the case. If the plant's eating more nutri nutrients than the nutrients that are concentrating because we see VWC drop, then uh, we're going to see it stagnant or even see the EC drop because the plant's using those nutrients up. So uh, if in general, your, your EC and your VWC need to be evaluated separately. Uh, if we do make assumptions on there, then uh, it's going to have to be based on previous experience, you know, running things exactly the same as you have in the past with absolutely no changes as far as plant growth behavior. Um, I don't think that's a very reasonable solution. I, I, so I, I would definitely approach it as two separate numbers. Uh, let's try to hit our target VWCs. Let's try to hit our Target ECs, yes, they are related. So that's why we want to modulate our uh, our amount of runoff so that we can basically get to the EC numbers that we want without playing around with our feed EC too much. Um, yeah, so get, get a sensor system that uh, tracks both of them. Yep. See inside that substrate. All right. Another question from Diane submitted over YouTube live. Can VPS swing from 1.3 to 1.8 in week seven, eight, and nine causing mold? Uh, yeah. So, you know, VPD swings are definitely undesirable. Um, the plants typically prefer a more 
static type of environments so to get used to that. Uh, you know, when we talk about swings, it's really going to depend on how fast uh, those happen and how often that they happen. Uh, obviously, anytime that you know, indoor, you have a little bit more control to uh, to avoid the the VPD swings. Uh, sometimes when you're in greenhouses, it's you're doing everything you can with your equipment to to keep that within range. Uh, since you know 1.3 to 1.8 is typically you know a little bit on the you know the high side. That's where we like it to the high side. I'm gonna guess that that's there's something else that's playing into the mold and mildew uh, that they're seeing at their facility. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Moving back to Instagram questions here. Green street grow. They're looking for some 24 hour veg steering tips. What would you recommend? Um, cool. Yeah. I don't see a lot of people doing 24 hour veg. Um, you know, 18, six is kind of the standard in the industry. Uh, however, it, you know, there's been some people doing it very successful for, for quite a while now. So I guess the veg steering tips would be to make sure that your environment is ideal for those plants. Um, you know, keep an eye, you know, do some time series camera shots. Do, do we ever see those, those plants, um, you know, relaxing or are they always praying for the entire 24 hours constantly throughout veg? That might just give you kind of an idea of how your feeding practices, uh, how your plants responding to your feeding practices throughout that time frame. So I don't, I guess I don't have any really specific tips for it, but obviously, you know, checking your environment, uh, making sure that, uh, your, your irrigation shots are, are hitting when you want. So you're getting some dry back, but you are getting lots of irrigations throughout the day to encourage a plant growth response from those irrigations. It's amazing. You, you just, the segues are so perfect because the next question is about P2. All right. So Norwest, Norwest 3R LLC wrote in, during P2 irrigations, do I need to run off or is just maintaining my ideal VWC? Is that it? Yeah. So... I guess if we have two good conditions, then we don't need runoff. And I've got uh, some pretty well accomplished clients that are able to run with almost no runoff. So the, the two conditions would be, are we getting the EC that we want? So if we don't need to decrease our EC, then we don't necessarily need to get runoff in pH or in uh, P2, excuse me. And, uh, and so that's that's basically the main driver of how much runoff that I like to, to look at. And then the other would be if you know our nutrient composition is, is stable. Um, so if we don't need to refresh the nutrients in the substrate. So obviously our plant is choosing out different ions in solution to eat and, and turn into um, plant food. It's photosynthesizing those different nutrients in the substrate. And so if the composition, the amount of each in comparison to each other is stable, then we don't necessarily need to flush, flush out any of the unstabilized nutrient solution in there. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that back in the days, I think we used to see quite a bit more runoff than we do anymore. There's, you know, a number of pretty high quality nutrients, prepackaged nutrients available specifically for cannabis these days, uh, which, which has made a big difference in how much people need to push runoff in order to, uh, to keep their nutrients stabilized. And you know, that's a little bit where I use that pH uh, of the runoff, kind of looping around to the question earlier here, uh, to track and make sure that the, what I can see, obviously, is uh, that 
the negative and positives are staying balanced. If, you know, we had really, really good equipment at a facility, we could do, um, do a composition breakdown, but that's not necessarily a need or realistic for, for most production facilities. Excellent, Jason. Thank you for that. All right. Husky wrote in on YouTube live. I'd be happy to ask your questions for you. Um, if we do get a swing up or down, should we swing back to correct BPD fast or transition back slower in order to correct values instead of causing the second swing as well? Um, yeah, uh, I guess for me, what I like to do is rather than get too concerned about how I'm correcting it, I like to think about why it happened. Uh, I did one of my HVAC, uh, pieces of equipment go out, you know, did a dehumidifier die? You know, if I'm in a greenhouse, there's a huge slew of uh, different pieces of equipment that could attribute to attribute that type of swing. I typically like to to get to a little bit more gradual type of approach. Uh, obviously if you're way out of range, then you do need to be pretty proactive and, and get it back up or down, uh, as fast as you can so that you're not jeopardizing plant health. You know, let's just think about temperature, right? And so if your VPD is really, really low because your temperature, you know, went from 80 degrees to 60 degrees, uh, you're probably going to want to get back up to a little bit warmer temperatures pretty quickly. Um, you know, and, and obviously if it's even worse than that, then get things corrected real fast. Obviously if your VPD is way too high because our humidity went from 50% to 20%, then again, something that we probably want to correct pretty fast. So, uh, not an easy answer without, you know, giving it some specific numbers on there, but, but that would be my approach is, uh, understand the severity of how far out of range you are and, uh, and correct it depending on that severity. Awesome. Thank you for that. All right. Diane submitted another question over YouTube. This is a really great one. All right. Did you guys recommend Arroyo Terrace 12 for cocoa and perlite mix or it's only rock wall cube tool? Should I switch my facility to rock wall just because of Terrace 12 or can I stick with cocoa and perlite? Uh, should you switch to Terrace or switch to Rockwell just for the Terrace 12? No. Uh, our Terrace 12, we use a soilless calibration. It's pretty good in Rockwell and Cocoa and Cocoa Perlite Mix. Uh, you guys have probably heard me on here preach a lot of times about using Cocoa simply because it's more forgiving than Rockwell. Uh, if you have everything in your facility dialed in as far as environment, um, handling and, and prepping properties, uh, and environmental constraints then, uh, or irrigation, um, parameters, then yeah, you can start to try to play with rock wool. Uh, that being said, anecdotally, I've had a lot of clients that moved to, to rock wool before they were ready, uh, and then needed to switch back just because of decrease in performance. Uh, it's a little bit you know, there's a little bit more reliability with Rockwell if, if you do run into issues. Uh, I think a number of times I've kind of talked about Rockwell being the, the sports car of the substrates in the industry where it, it is high performance and uh, and it needs to be taken care of uh, appropriately in order to be high performance. Whereas, you know, Coco is going to be more like a, you know, SUV or a truck or a Jeep where it's, it's going to get you where you want to go. Maybe not with quite as much... Uh, quite as much performance, but it's going to require quite a bit less maintenance in order to get there. And, and you're going to get away with hitting a few curbs on the way. 
Awesome. Thank you for that. All right. Continuing with YouTube and just a reminder to those folks who are on Hangouts today, don't forget to post your questions in the chat so we can get those answered live too. All right. Air Expansion Paragliding has another question for us. Is it true that the, that the, tw- the Terra 12 won't 24-hour data log because I'm not a commercial grow? If it does not, what is the best way to collect, collect data a couple of times a day? Yeah. Uh, and so the Terrace 12, it's just a sensor, uh, with our commercial system, it plugs into what we call it node. It's just a, a wireless doggle that, uh, pipes the data into the internet in which we database it in time series, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, uh, and that's, yeah, that is currently only available to commercial growers. Obviously for the home growers, we do have the, the solar solution in which you can go and, and take a snapshot of data. If, uh, you are doing that and you want to get the best data points possible, usually, you know, before your gate. So you get the, the low, low water content number just after you irrigate. So you get your high water content number. Those are the, be the, the two probably most important to capture. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, just a reminder, a few episodes actually we covered just considerations for um, our products. So if anybody has any uh, wants more information on that, you can always reach out to us for a demo too. Okay. Got another question in from our good friend, Diane over YouTube. Can Jason give us some good nutrition formulation for bulking phase under LED lights, like by PPMS values? What do you think, Jason? Uh, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Okay. (laughs) I, I'm, I'm not a chemist by trade. Um, you know, I, I think probably, uh, just to be humble, the nutrient composition is, is way beyond, uh, what, what I'm qualified to, to be out there giving recommendations for, um, yeah. you know, usually you'll just hear me kind of recommend some of, uh, some of the well-known two-part salts in the industry. Um, yeah, there is good ways that you can kind of modulate with those two-part salts, but as far as getting, um, raw chemicals and blending them into your nutrients, uh, find someone that's a little bit better than me before, before you get going with that. That's great. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Another question from Instagram here. This one came from that boy grows fire. They want to know how does salinity and cocoa affect sensor data? Salinity and cocoa affecting sensor data. Um, nothing special. Uh, you know, as long as you're below 30 decimals, then our sensors are going to give you a pretty accurate number as far as what the salinity in that cocoa is. Uh, once we get up there, our sensors just lose accuracy simply because of you know, how salty or how dry uh, the substrate it is. So really at the, the operating levels that we're used to, uh, the amount of salinity doesn't have a significant impact on our sensor performance. Great. Thank you. Okay. We got a question here from Instagram from it's that simple for me. They are looking for the best pot size per plant in a two by two cocoa, bigger plant due to state regulations. Um, in a two by two cocoa, uh, with that, so substrate sizes, obviously for bigger plants, you know, my favorites, usually a two gallon type of substrate. Um, and yeah, so, you know, some States do 
require you to have a limited plant count. In that case, obviously you want to be growing five, six foot plants. And that's where being a, a two gallon, um, two and a half gallon, maybe a three gallon, but, uh, that's pushing probably a little bigger than I'd want. Um, the, the best way to judge if your substrate size is appropriate is to make sure that you have some flexibility on both ends of your crop steering spectrum. Right. So if I'm only, you know, giving, uh, P ones during generative steering and I don't have too much dryback, then we know my substrate's big enough. Um, if I see very little dry back during some of our, our hard generative pushing, then I know my substrate's a little bit too big. Good rules of thumb. That's great. Okay. Awesome. All right. We got another question in from YouTube here. Hopper Stone wrote in, when you were bringing your EC back into check using a lower EC input to bring it back down, is this the best way? I, I, I usually try to stay a little bit static with my feed ECs. Um, you know, especially in facilities where you're feeding more than one room with, uh, you know, dosatrons, for example, it, my favorite way to modulate EC is just use runoff, um, just to reduce how much complexity we, we have, uh, you know, typically unless you've got a, a real good, you know, high tech, um, mixing system, then using valves and just have your valves open a little bit longer, run a few more irrigations to pull that EC down. Um, and obviously the best thing you can do is continuously monitor that. So check out your levels on a daily basis and, uh, just make sure they're, they're not stacking up too hard, too fast. And, uh, and you won't need to have too much runoff in order to correct it. Awesome, Jason. Thank you so much. All right. Well, so these are all the questions we've had submitted right now. We still have time in the show. So anybody's on with us live, feel free to post those questions. But I do want to point out, Jason, we've gotten a lot of questions in about our new irrigation scheduling feature. And we are very excited uh, to have made that announcement this week. A lot of people had quite specific questions. And I just wanted to let you all know we are in the process of putting together an irrigation scheduling episode of office hours. So we will be walking through all of those features with you. If you're currently an Arroyo customer, Jason is the best way for uh, clients to learn about it, to reach out to their client success team member. Yeah, we're, we are stoked. Uh, you know, we've been working on it for quite a long time and uh, there's a good number of other irrigation systems that we'd love to integrate with. Just happens that open sprinkler is one of the most popular that, uh, that we see at client facilities. And it just happens. It's also the easiest for us to integrate with it. They run an open API, which uh, means that we don't have to do any special programming in order to work with it. And uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited to be launching that. I expect that uh, a lot of our clients will be, will be jumping on board right as soon as we've got, uh, got the software uh, released to the public. Yeah, we're, we're extremely excited. So stay tuned. If you are not on our email list, you're going to want to be because we will let you know when that episode is going to drop and you're going to want to bring all those questions uh, to the show. Um, so we're looking forward to talking through and showing you all those features and just broadening what Arroyo can do for you. So uh, very excited about that. Um, gosh, we've already gotten in a couple more YouTube questions. So Jason, we're going to just keep on rocking and rolling. You ready? Let's do it. All right. Diane wants to know what's the best dripping system. How many gallons per minute? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, I like the slow drip rates. Um, so typically if I'm in a you know one or two gallon cocoa, if I'm running, um, Hugo's or if I'm running, 
slabs or unislabs, we'll see two drippers. And my favorite is the 0.29 or the 0.3 gallon drippers. Those, those definitely allow the substrate, the capillary effects of the substrate to work better. Obviously, um, you know, if we use the kitchen sponge analogy, if we're dripping on a kitchen sponge, the whole thing is going to become saturated before it starts running off through the bottom. If we turn the sink on full blast, uh, a lot of times the edges of that sponge are still going to be dry and we're going to have uh, irrigation coming through the bottom. So um, if, you know, if your irrigation systems can handle it, typically the lower drip rates are, are more preferred. Can handle on that irrigation. Excited about that topic. Awesome. Okay. Um, next question from Air Expansion Paragliding over YouTube. In regards to crop steering, what indicators are there to come out of vegetative bulk stage and into generative to finish? Yeah, that's probably one that we have a little bit less clear indicators on. Uh, you know, if you've kept track of your harvest group and some of the previous ways that you've run it, um, use that kind of as the the framework. Um, the best way is just to know how the strain perfor- performs. Uh, if you know, if we start seeing you know any foxtail in towards the end, usually it's probably time to to push a little bit more ripening. Um, maybe even earlier than that to avoid that type of, to type of work. Um, you know, in, in general, I'll talk about ripening in that say five to maybe 12 days time frame. Um, we see some people do it a little bit longer just for a, a certain strain. If it's like a 10 week strain or something like that. Um, but off the top of my head, I don't, I don't necessarily have a, a specific plant morphology going on that uh, would indicate that the, now is the time to start ripening, unfortunately. No, all good. Just dropping the knowledge. That's awesome. Um, I, those are all the questions we had today. Jason, anything you want to summarize before we maybe maybe close up a little bit early? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe let's just talk about uh, a little bit of what we saw at the cannabis conference last week down in Vegas. Um, yeah. I, I was really excited to to see how many um how many people out there these days are really striving for increased efficiency through technology? So, you know, historically, you know, some of the new markets have so much headroom in their profitability that just getting operating, you know, uh, you know having a place to, to get going at, getting some baseline of proficiency was was really their main goals. And, uh, you know, over the last six months or so, I, I think that some of those price drops have, have pushed people into getting a little bit more excited, get diving into their data a little deeper and, and understanding, hey, you know, these these aren't big corners that we can cut anymore. These are, you know, the, the small tweaks that we need to, to make to stay afloat and stay competitive in the market. So um, really encouraging that people are taking those approaches and, and uh, and doing everything they can to to stay profitable with uh, with systems like ours. I so agree with you. What was really exciting to me was hearing so much conversation in the panels about the importance of data and um, working with what we have. You know, the industry has been through a lot. The last six months have been really, really tough. And so being able to kind of talk through ideas, get some different solutions, different approaches, um, hearing about that, working with what we what we have so that we can we can kind of keep our heads down and, and do what we need to do to, to make it through the next few months um, just really felt really inspiring and exciting. It was 
was awesome to be back into the trade show scene. Um, I saw Cheech walking around and freaked out. Um, it was awesome. <laughs> it was so good. All right. Oh, Diane dropped another question on YouTube. All right, Jason, here we go. They want to know, is it bad or good? My runoff comes out like 7.0, 7.5 EC. I'm watering with 3.2 EC for bulking. Um, not necessarily bad. No, uh, it would, you know, kind of depend on the, where you're at in the plant life cycle. If we're running some, some generative, that sounds pretty accurate. Um, yeah, obviously if we need to drop that, we'll push a little bit more, uh, a little bit more runoff to drop that EC. But, uh, yeah, my favorite you know, way is to think about you know, our time series data and look at the dynamics of that, uh, EC. So, you know, what is it right after we irrigate in the substrate? You know, what, what is the EC that we see there? Sometimes, you know, depending on the media that you're using, you're actually pushing a little bit more concentrated salts out of the bottom of the substrate. And so that the plant EC will be a little bit lower than that runoff EC. Um, so I, a lot of times after you get used to tracking your substrate EC uh, in a system like ours, you, you don't necessarily have to be taking uh, the runoff readings like you have in the past. Um, but uh, simple answer, no, I don't think it's bad. That's it, Arroyo. Trying to make your lives easier out there, everyone. Awesome. I think that's our last question, unless uh, anything else comes in the last couple seconds. Um, just a quick reminder to the folks who are excited about irrigation control. We've got a special episode of Office Hours that's going to be coming up possibly next week. Uh, but you're going to want to sign up for the email list and follow us on Instagram, TikTok. Um, hit us up if you have any questions in the meantime. Jason, this was such a good episode. Thank you so much for all of your incredible knowledge, man. Do what we can over here. That's it. Doing what we can. Um, great conversation. Thank you to everybody who joined us for this week's episode of Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. The best way to get your questions answered is to join us live, either on YouTube or on Hangouts link. So if you have any questions about Arroyo, if you want to book a demo, our experts are happy to walk you through all of its features and talk to you about how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. But as always, if there's a topic you want us to cover in a future episode, drop us a line at support arroya at metergroup.com. Post it in the chat, send us an email, send us a DM over Instagram. We want to hear from you. We record every session. Everybody who is on today, they're going to get a link to the video from today's conversation and it'll be on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do spread the word. Thank you all so much, Jason. Thank you. I'll see you next week, right? Have a great day. All right, everybody. Thank you. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.